This is Audience Meets Artists from Augustana Arts, where we bring you behind-the-scenes stories from local, regional, and internationally acclaimed artists. My name is Lynn Nestigan, Executive Director of Augustana Arts, and today I have the pleasure to sit down with our guest solos for the upcoming Stratus concert, Searching Stories from the Other Side, on November 12th and 13th here in Denver, Colorado. Lindsay Kesselman here is with us, and uh, we welcome you to Audience Meets Artist, Lindsay. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, well, let's begin our conversation um, with what I've all asked each of our guests here on Audience Meets Artists, and that is for you to share a little bit about your background um, and early introduction to music. You know, I was a lucky girl. I grew up in a musical family. So music is my family's culture and community. And um, my parents are both choral directors. So I grew up surrounded by choirs and um, and my, my dad was a professor at a local college. And so we were constantly going to concerts, going to rehearsals, having guest artists stay in our house and come to have dinner with my family. Um, and my parents were also, are also very active commissioners of new music. And so I got to know composers and what that whole process of commissioning new music and collaborating to bring new pieces of art to life was like from a really, really early age. Um, I also have a brother who is a phenomenal musician as well. He's the principal bass of the Houston Symphony. So we, we like to say that music is our family's sort of collective illness and interest. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we're so lucky that we've, we've gotten to collaborate you know, together many, many times. I grew up singing in a youth chorus that my mom conducted uh, for about nine years. And we toured all over the world doing that together. And my dad is a composer as well as conductor and pianist. And so I have sung with him at the keyboard many times. And I have also... Um, performed and premiered a lot of his songs. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those unique, strange things. I mean, everybody has a different, a different upbringing and a different story, but I was kind of surrounded by music my whole life. And I even have a old diary from when I was a kid, I think I was like six years old in which I wrote, I wanted to be a conductor and a musician. So there was really nothing else that I ever wanted to do. <laughs> well, and you could have chosen, I suppose, any instrument, um, but you're a vocalist. So tell us about well, how you landed on that. Well, you know, there too, I mean, singing was such a huge part of my family's culture, but with both parents, uh, my mom started out as a singer and then became a choral director. My dad was a choral director and also conducted, you know, musical theater. And I just grew up seeing so many people doing it. And I think you know, when I was a kid, I was pretty shy and I, I really got nervous singing in front of people. Um, and I kind of, I was lucky that I grew out of that eventually, but I was always drawn to storytelling. And I think all of music is storytelling and no matter what your instrument is, you, you are a character, you are portraying, you know, a different, you are walking in someone else's shoes, but, but the, that is the, my favorite thing about singing and especially working with so many different um, living composers is using the voice as an expressive tool to tell a story and to really engage with audiences on a personal and emotional level. And we are so lucky that in November we get to do the piece that we're doing, Songs from the End of the World, because that is one that 
you know, was only written a few years ago, but people shouldn't be afraid. It's a very accessible, immediately impactful piece and story. And every time I've, I mean, I've performed that piece probably 20 different times at this point. And every single time the audience is right there and really, really engaged with this character and her story. So I can't wait to share it in Denver. Yeah, we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about Mackie's uh, songs from the end of the world. But I want to, you know, I bet holiday gatherings with your family was amazing. Did you guys perform as a family, like after big dinner and sing and somebody sat at the piano? Uh, what you oh, did? yeah, definitely. And we, you know, we would love to gather around the piano, piano and sing Christmas carols. And we also had a tradition for a while every year when we would gather for Christmas of sitting around and sight reading Bach chorales <laughs> because we're just that nerdy, you know, yeah, <laughs> just love it in a book and, and argue about whether we were using fixed or movable dough. And it was, it was fantastic. And, and it's been really fun to transition from that into our lives as professional musicians. And then, you know, finding ways to collaborate. My brother just married a beautiful woman last year, who is the principal harpist of the St. Louis symphony. So now we're adding a harp to the family band and we're thrilled about that. That sounds really a lot of fun. I want to explore a little bit this nature versus nurture because obviously you have a talent for singing so but you were also nurtured in it but who was it or how did you get encouraged to say you know Lindsay you have a talent here that you need to how did that come about uh you know it it was I mean I was lucky I feel like I have this huge supportive extended family of musicians that were brought to me through my parents so I still I'm in touch with so many of the people who made such an impression on me at an early age. And I think the best part was being surrounded by adults who were passionate about what they did for a living, you know, and seeing from the inside out what it took in terms of discipline, in terms of um, work ethic, um, not only the talent piece of it, but the the drive, you know, to, to pursue something that you love to do. And that, you know, in the case of music is not something that you set down at the end of the work day and then go home. It's sort of ongoing all the time. And I learned what it meant to have music as a lifestyle. So I think that was great. And then when I went off to college, it was my intention to become um, a high school choral director. That's what I really wanted to do. And so I was really, I was lucky to have two parents who were incredibly passionate educators. And that was the piece of it that really appealed to me first. And so I, I did a double major of music ed and voice performance at Michigan State as an undergrad. And I was so, I was lucky to be there and have the experiences I did. I got to lead lots of rehearsals. I got to teach quite a bit. Um, and I also got to perform and, and, you know, it's not always the case that as an undergrad, you get the experience of having leading roles in operas. But by the time I graduated, I had three or four, you know, and that really taught me a lot about who I was as a musician, what my priorities were. So I decided to go on for, um, to grad school for performance. And I think it was that inside me that I felt something shifting and I still, love teaching and I will always find a way to be a teacher in my life because it's really important to me. But I think I fell in love with individual voice teaching and I and I sort of transitioned from mostly conducting choirs to more of that, the one-on-one -on -one instruction and really getting in there with one 
unique individual. Um, and I'm lucky that in my life, I, I find ways to do both. I still find ways to get in front of choirs because I love, I love choral singing and I love making music in community with others. Um, so I think it was less of somebody saying, you know, you have the talent to do this. And it was more me discovering in my own gut that I wanted to perform and I wanted to be a storyteller and I, and I felt like I had something unique to contribute there. So I just feel very fortunate that every day I really get to do what I love. Let's talk a little bit about that discipline or that work ethic you talked about. Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, it, it evolves all the time. I think as you, as you keep going, you learn more and more about yourself and you learn how to be more efficient and more effective in your own preparation and practice. Um, but I think that's sort of the thing that I've learned is often, you know, when I go out and sing places, people talk about, oh, you have such a beautiful voice or you have such a great talent. When did you discover it? But to me, I always try to say eh, singing is like anything else, you know, sure, there are inherent abilities and maybe aptitudes is the way to say it, but you have to develop that aptitude and it's a skill like anything else. So anyone can learn to sing, you know, there may be, there may be different ways that that avenue can be pursued in different people's lives, but singing is not inherently just a talent. It is a learned set of skills that you hone over time and you get more and more comfortable with. So, you know, I think I, I kind of, one of the things that showed me that I wanted to go on and be a performer is that I loved to practice <laughs> and I loved to go in, you know, go in the practice room and sit at the piano and and take pieces of music apart and figure out what made them so special. And I, I would lose myself for hours if I was staring at a beautiful, you know, incredible piece of music. And I would kind of emerge and then look at the clock and realize how much time had passed. And I still feel that way. I often have to set an alarm if I'm going to study, you know, for an hour or two, just to make sure that I get to my next appointment or something. And I don't go too far down the rabbit hole because it's so the study of it is so compelling to me. So, you know, at this point, I now, I have a process that I really trust and that helps me. And it's a good thing because I'm a freelancer full-time. And so most of my work is spent at home at my desk or at my piano. And it's up to me to keep myself motivated and on track for all the different projects that are coming up. And that's a balancing act that is not easy, you know, but it's, it's worth it. And it's wonderful because I then get to do all these cool things. But um, most of my practice time is spent studying and thinking, you know, with my metronome and really trying to understand the piece from the inside out. And then I kind of add the singing piece of it later. Once my brain knows what I'm doing, then my voice has a better chance of falling in line, I think. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And it's um, very intriguing. Um, and you've obviously accomplished quite a bit so far. The one that stood out to me, of course, is being Grammy nominated. So tell us a little bit about that. The best thing about it to me is that I've, I've been nominated for two Grammys and they were both with pieces that I really believed in and I felt powerfully about. And so, you know, ultimately it's, it's, it's a really, it's a nice acknowledgement and it's very validating, but, but more so I was just so happy that those pieces could get out in the world and people could hear them. I really believe in his name is Chris Cerrone and I've worked with him on many projects and I find his music so 
um, so compelling and so emotionally available. And, and I feel like it just kind of goes right to the bullseye of the heart right away for people. It's not hard to listen to. It's not hard to get into. Um, so there was a song cycle called the pieces that fall to earth, which was the first one. And then this most recent one was, um, a song cycle called, I will learn to love a person. And they're both available online and people can hear them in all the traditional places. Um, but people, I was so happy to see that these pieces meant something to people and these performances and, and, you know, that's, that's, what's so great about doing a lot of contemporary music. Mozart used to be new. He was a contemporary composer, and it's only because he had relationships with performers who championed his music and with patrons who championed his music that enough people were able to hear, hear it that then it became part of the Western canon of music that is so beloved by so many. And that's my job as a, as a person who sings mostly contemporary music is to really champion composers that I believe in and bring their work to as many, many audiences as I, as I can, because I think some of these pieces will end up in that more permanent canon. It's an exciting process. Well, how do you prepare for a performance or a concert with a piece such as the one that uh, you were talking about that just you just were passionate about and really uh, wanted to share? Well, it's, you know, weeks and months of just slow, steady, meticulous work. A lot of it is silent at a desk, just listening to the music in my head and thinking about what I want to bring to it. Um, I like the, the idea that when I sing old music, it's my job to make it seem fresh and new and relevant to the audience. And when I sing new music, I think it's my job to make it feel really settled and confident and like it's been around forever. And so that's kind of a fun challenge that I always have in my head at the start of the process. Um, but I think it's it kind of gets divided into three phases. One is this silent study at a desk, really figuring out what makes the music tick and what's happening, what's happening um, in every measure. And then there's the singing piece of it, which is sort of bringing all of the the physical and technical vocal work up to speed with where my brain is. And then the, the last phase is all about memorization and character and physicality and what, you know, getting it kind of performance ready and on its feet. And so I go through that process for every piece that I learn. And because I'm, you know, flying all over the place, doing all these different things, I have to know where I am in that process with each piece. And I have to keep a lot of those juggling at the same time um, to make sure that I'm really prepared for the next thing and the thing beyond that and the thing that's four months in the future. And so it's pretty dynamic, but I think that's great. I love that. I'm not a person who loves routine. And I love about my life that every week is pretty different and every project is different. And my I get new collaborators all the time. So it's fun. Well, you're going to be singing from the perspective of Calypso in mid-November here with Stratus. So where are you in the process? And tell us what we can expect with uh, this performance of John Mackey's uh, Songs from the End of the World. Well, this piece is just really special to me. Um, I've performed it many, many times. So, you know, 
this is going to be a really fun chance for this audience because this this piece now feels like it's just a part of me and and you know as someone who specializes in new music it's such a luxury to get to do some of these pieces that i care about so much multiple times because of course every time you come back to it you uncover more and you discover new things and you add layers of understanding about the music and about the story and the character um, this is a really emotional piece. It's three movements and it is very beautiful. Um, and, and it was the first vocal piece that John Mackey ever wrote. He and I met at a different concert where some of his music was being done and I was singing something else. And I said to him afterwards, just kind of on a whim, Hey, have you ever written anything for a singer? And he said, mm, I think I wrote a couple songs for like a college girlfriend, but I'm pretty sure that I burned them and I don't think they exist anymore. And I said, well, you should think about it. If you're ever interested, let me know. Cause I think you'd, I think you'd do a great job. And he did. And we found a consortium of, of um, ch chamber winds. I mean, wind symphonies who then used a chamber group to premiere this piece. And then this version, the orchestra version was just commissioned only a few years ago. It was, it was second, but I think it's so special and um, just has even different and, and different colors about it. I love both versions, but I'm so happy that there's this string version. And Calypso, you know, there are only about two lines devoted to her in the Odyssey. Um, so this, this piece, really dives deep into her character and imagines much more in a three-dimensional way what her story might really be and what her experience might be. So she's a, a nymph who was banished to this island by the gods and she has lived there alone ever since and that is her fate for eternity. She's an immortal being so she will never die and she is on this island with not another human soul. So it's a, it's a lonely existence. Um, and this is the story of Odysseus coming to her island. She, she really rescues him from his shipwreck and brings him to live on this island and nurses him back to health. And they fall in love and they spend seven beautiful years together. And at the end of those seven years, he says, you know, I, I have to leave. I have to go back to my family. I have to go back to my life. And she is heartbroken. She didn't see it coming. And now it's like her, her loneliness is so much worse because she has experienced companionship and she's had this incredible love story, but in an incredible act of generosity, she had made this beautiful tapestry telling the story of their love and she unweaves the tapestry and instead weaves it into a sail for the boat that can carry him back to his life. So it's just, it's this really powerful, beautiful arc. And in the middle, there's this pearl of happiness where she's talking about how, how happy she is to be with him. And the fact that this love has awakened her senses to all of the beauty around her that she wasn't fully able to appreciate before. But then the crash is pretty hard when she watches him sailing away and realizes that she will never have this again. So it's gonna be powerful. 
Yeah, it is powerful. Well, that may sound not sound like a very cheerful night at the concert hall and it isn't, but it, but you know, one of the beautiful things about art to me is that it gives us a space to experience really potent, powerful emotion together. And I think that's why people come to live theater. I think they want that shared experience. So it will be meaningful. It will be powerful. And I think people will be really drawn in by this beautiful music. Right. So the three parts are a, uh, a long time alone, one, and then raveling is two, and at sea. Um, talk to us a little bit about the musical part of it that connects with the storytelling a part of it. What can I, as a listener, try to hear as you're singing it and putting the words to this music? You know, I think... I mean, the poetry is so beautiful. It was written by John Mackey's wife, Abby Jakes, and she is an astonishingly brilliant writer and thinker. Um, and she she just did a beautiful job. And he, he did, um, I think the music that John has written is such a clear reflection of what the poetry is saying. So I would say that your best bet is to just focus in on the words. I will do my best to make them as clear as possible so that you can really be living the story with this character. But the music, there's nothing in the music that feels like, um, feels out of the channel of what the text is saying. They really are hand in hand the whole time. So a long time alone is, is sort of drawing you into what her world has been. There's a lot of spaciousness and, and open harmonies, which, which feel kind of delicate and fragile. And, and I think are a great mirror reflection of the loneliness that this character has been feeling now for a long time. And raveling starts with the harp. It's got this, it, it almost sounds like um, the, the loom that she's been spinning on. It's, you'll hear that. It's like this beautiful sort of propelling rhythmic idea that is her weaving this tapestry and drawing us into the excitement she has about this love story. And then there's a a moment pretty quickly in that second movement where I stop singing and it's all instrumental interlude. And, and if you watch my face, I will be telling the silent story of Odysseus coming to her and telling her he's going to leave and breaking her heart. So that's the whole point of this instrumental interlude is to make that transition between light and hope and love and despair <laughs> and it has to happen pretty quick so it's an important part of my job in that in that movement and then the third movement starts with me singing a cappella with no instruments and it's this really beautiful plaintive almost sighing cry where i say again alone again forever and I think a lot of the accompaniment is really illustrative of watching his boat get farther and farther away and near the horizon until it's out of sight. So I just, I don't think, you know, this is not a piece of new music that you're going to walk away scratching your head about. You will get it the first time. You will, you will receive everything that John and Abby have really generously given you. And it's not going to be hard um, intellectual work. It is going to be hard emotional work though. 
Well, and it's not just John and Abby, but it's you, Lindsay, also that bringing it to us, which we're really looking forward to. Me um, and Adam and the orchestra, I just can't yeah, wait to meet yeah. them. This is going to be a wonderful collaboration on every level. It definitely will be. Uh, what advice would you give someone who might be interested in pursuing the career to lead to these opportunities, amazing opportunities to be able to perform uh, works of significance? Any advice to someone? And I regularly love speaking with students and, and young professionals and trying to help them find their path. But I think that's the core of it for me is I don't think any of us should be trying to recreate anyone else's artistic path. I think the most important thing we can do is do some soul searching and figure out what's important to me and what do I uniquely have to bring to make this world better and more beautiful and more collaborative. And then pursue those things and find, find your people who have your similar artistic priorities. I've been so lucky that my, my life so far has been full of those those people and those relationships. And so more and more with every year, I feel like I'm getting to do things that are really in the center of who I am and how I want to contribute to the world and what the world needs from me. And that's what I would say to anyone else. You know, Judy Garland said, don't be a second rate version of someone else. Be a first rate version of yourself. We can only ever be a second rate version of someone else because it's not authentic to who we are and what we have to offer. So I just would, I would encourage anyone who wants to pursue any kind of performance that they should do some deep, quiet thinking about what is the music that really speaks to them and what do they think sets them apart as a performer and what does the world seem to need that hasn't been filled yet. And those questions can lead us all to really great personal answers about how to pursue a career. Well, we really look forward to the concert on uh, November 12th and 13th. The 12th will be at Historic Grant Theater, which is a, an old church, but they have a beautiful um, auditorium theater upstairs. And we'll be actually pairing the entire concert with wine and cheese with a master wine educator, Claude Robbins, who will be with us and Adam. So between each song, he, we will pair it with, we have sommiers who are pouring wine and yeah, it is really fun. We've done it before and we're looking forward to it. And then on Sunday, call it our signature immersive set style where the audience sits within the orchestra next to oboes, bassoons, I'm not sure. You'll be probably right in front of someone. A family-friendly in total immersive experience on November 13th. And tickets can be found at augustanaarts.org. We're looking forward to meeting you, Lindsay, there. You have an impressive website. Tell us what are some of the other projects that are in the works for you? And then how might someone be able to find you? No, I'm, I'm easy to find and I'm accessible. And I love talking to people who are interested in, in what I do. So um, I have a website. I'm on, I'm all over YouTube. I have Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, and I respond to messages when people send them to me because I appreciate it. I appreciate them reaching out. It's a full season and I'm very grateful. I'm leaving on Saturday for a week of performances with my trio Haven. It's a trio for soprano, clarinet, and piano. And we commission new work and we bring compelling stories to audiences. So we are getting ready to premiere two 
really phenomenal pieces of music this next week by um, David Biedenbender and Yvette Harriman Rodriguez, who are both wonderful composers and human beings that we love collaborating with. So Tuesday night will be our very first performance of those song cycles, as well as a, a great piece by Rashan Edizadi that we also love called Hardwired for Optimism. Um, so that's the next thing on deck, but I am lucky that the rest of the year is full of other performances of John Mackey's piece, um, Songs from the End of the World that I'll be doing in Denver, and another piece that he wrote for me called Places We Can No Longer Go, which is also a very powerful piece um, inspired by his mom's struggle with early onset Alzheimer's. So I get to do that several times also this year, and I'm really looking forward to that. And there are a couple new recording projects that I'm doing too, and that's also a really fun medium. I love how up close and personal recording is. Um, so I'm doing a project with a, with a percussionist and composer in Toronto who has played in the Nexus Percussion Quartet for many, many, many years. And he's written a couple of large scale pieces that we're gonna be recording for lots of instruments and voices. Um, and then a new opera written by Chris Cerrone uh, called In a Grove that I'll be recording later this year too. So there are lots of things on deck and lots of things to keep me busy and spinning all the plates, um, but that's a reason to be very, very grateful. Indeed. And so, Lindsay, thank you for taking the time this morning to talk with us and uh, give a little bit of insight about the upcoming concert to, for our audience. We look forward to seeing you on November 12th and 13th here in Denver for uh, searching stories from the other side. Thank, thank you so you much, me. Lindsay. Thank yeah. you.